You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, very excited because, well, it's the first female we've had on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Her name is Shannon Polson, and her claim to fame, the first female to be assigned to the 18th Airborne Corps as an Apache pilot flying missions over Bosnia during her deployment there, and we are super pumped to have her on the podcast. Shannon, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. All right, well, look, let's just start from the beginning. I mean, why did you join the military? Well, I did ROTC while I was at college, and so that was certainly a, a, a big instigator for the decision. And uh, and that was something I really was just trying out to see if it was a good fit or not before I even applied for a scholarship. And it ended up being something that I felt really strongly about and really connected to. I had a chance to work with some really great people, and uh, and so that was that was the beginning of a long a, a long twelve years, if you include the time in ROTC. Yeah, I mean, did you do ROTC to help pay for college, or was the military something from the back of your mind that you thought as a young girl, hey, I want to try this out? It is never something that I considered, to be honest. My my dad had been drafted out of law school and had served four years very proudly as a JAG officer, um, but it wasn't something that I had ever considered. So it was definitely an exploration to look at a way to pay, help pay for college, and that ended up being both a big help in that regard, but also a, a really amazing adventure as well. So as you're going through ROTC, I mean, we, did you have any nerves about it? Were you like, this is like a guy's thing? Was there any preconceived notions, or was it something that you thought, hey, this is a great challenge for me? How, how did you feel about all that? Yeah, it was. I thought it was a great challenge. I grew up in Alaska, and so I think I had a lot, uh, and I was always an athlete, and so I think I had very different perspectives on what was a guy's thing or a girl's thing than maybe is is average, um, but maybe a lot more standard for people who, who are in sports and, and in the outdoors. So I grew up where, um, you know, in Alaska, we have a bumper sticker that says Alaska where men are men and women win the Iditarod. So <laughs> there are women who run and, and win the Iditarod, you know, a thousand mile dog sled race. And I knew women who were climbing Denali when I was a young girl and women, you know, Olympic Nordic skiers. So the idea that a woman couldn't do something really never crossed my mind. And in ROTC, we had Actually, in my cohort, I think we were thirty percent women, which was which was pretty unusual. So it was really not at all something that um, seemed to me to be a gender issue. So when you tried it out uh, and you're going through it, because I remember doing it as a freshman too. I wasn't on scholarship. I did ROTC, and you know, my first taste of it, I didn't love it. Like it, it was something I wanted to do pay, to pay for college, but I didn't love it. But then there becomes like kind of a crystallizing moment where you realize, you know what, this is something that I want to do, and all of a sudden it's become a passion. Did you have a moment like that during ROTC? I don't remember a specific moment. I think it was more of a gradual uh, understanding and integration. I mean, I, I definitely was far from the, the most stellar cadet for the first couple of years. And I think I was just getting used to the whole concept of this idea of a military uniform and, and what it was that, that you would do. And it was, I mean, it was in a way, it was almost entertaining at that stage. You know, when I, was, I think I was just newly 18 when I started college. And um, so it was... It, I wouldn't say an amusement is kind of the wrong word, but um, but certainly just and and a bit of an amusement, really. Uh, and and I don't know if I had a crystallizing moment so far. In the, I think the cadre just sort of led us in pretty well, actually, in in you know very slowly ratcheting up the intensity and and the seriousness of what we were doing. And of course, you 
you know, after freshman year, I went to airborne school, and um, after junior year, we all do that, uh, do the, the advanced camp that's called something else now, I think. But um, So each of those are, are ways to, to get more and more involved and more and more serious. And, uh, and I don't know when exactly uh, it became evident to me that um, that, that was something that would be a, a really important part of my life, but... Um, but the decision to go active duty as opposed to reserves, which my scholarship was a reserve forces duty scholarship, was one that I made in my senior year. And so I think uh, all of those those forces and those experience kind of culminated in that um, in that ultimate decision. So, and just to give people some background, you know, when you do ROTC, you when you sign up for a scholarship, typically it's predetermined whether you'll go right to active duty or you'll go in the reserves or the National Guard, depending on the needs of the government. Some people get to pick. Some people don't. You said you had a, re, a reserve one, and you had to change it to active duty. Um, was right. that was that something that kind of surprised people? What was the reasoning behind that? Well, actually, it, that's actually a fairly good story. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I was joining with the National Guard as part and part of an aviation unit, and uh, and aviation was something I'd had a lot of exposure to growing up in Alaska, and then certainly again as part of this unit. Uh, but when I went to receive my assignment for the years ahead, my senior year, I reported to the aviation commander and I stood at attention and uh, we exchanged a few pleasantries back and forth. And then this was the spring of 1993. He leaned back in his chair and looked down his nose at me and he said, you realize, cadet, that you will never fly an attack aircraft. Wow. And I looked back at him and I realized his remark for what it was meant to be, which was small and mean and cutting, uh, because at that point, attack aircraft weren't open to women, and it hadn't been something that I had really considered seriously at all. And so I went next to my to the assignment officer, who was much more civil, but at the end of our conversation, he said, Cadet, this is not official, but the battalion commander will not allow a female pilot to be assigned to his unit. And so basically, I went back really frustrated to my detachment and said, look, I want to go active duty because this is too much of the good old boy system. And, um, and you know, you're not certainly away from all good old boy systems in active duty, but there's a lot more change in the, the, the people at a given unit. And so I didn't think that that would be nearly as much of an issue. And then, of course, right after graduation, Congress changed the game on that colonel and lifted the combat exclusion clause. And then that's when all aircraft were open to both women and men. It's interesting... So that was really the, the specific moment that, that, that was the catalyst for that decision. It's interesting that you say that because, again, you know, the good old boy network, anybody who's in civilian business knows that it, it, it exists. I mean, it, it exists in all walks of life. And in the military, it tends to be very clicky, especially in the National Guard, because most of the people at this point in time in the Guard haven't deployed anywhere. They've been doing the same job in the same unit in the same state literally for like decade plus. So they all know each other. So really, it is a very tight woven knit network within the National Guard, whereas active duty is a lot more turnover every three to four years. You're moving duty stations, you're moving on in your career, and so there's a lot more fluidity. But I, f- I find it interesting that he said that so readily, because now today in 2016, if someone were to say that, it would literally be a social media firestorm. But that, I think, just goes to speak to... It just goes to speak to the difference in times. Outlets at the time, right? Right, yeah. But, I, I mean, so when, when he says that to you, did you feel... I mean, is it fair to say it was a sexist remark and you took it that way? Yeah, absolutely. And and at that point, I was confident enough to say, uh, you know, to, to call it what it was in my own head and uh, and just say I'm not going to put up with this and I'm going to find another way. 
and so that that that's the way that I grew up. That's the what what I know from sports and from every different endeavor that's been either academic or musical or sports related. And um, yeah, you find another way, and 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 you don't put up with that kind of stuff. So. So when you want, did you want to be a pilot ahead of time? I mean, did you know that's what you wanted to do in ROTC, or did, or did you figure that out? How did that come about? Well, I started going with the aviation unit my right. junior year, and again, I've always wanted to fly. So that's that's been something that that has been something I've that I've uh, dreamt about since childhood. So whether that was in a civilian aircraft or a military aircraft, I, I hadn't given that as much thought, and in fact, could probably assume that it would be civilian. So that was. That was certainly a, a long-standing interest and passion. Um, and then dealing with the aviation, you know, I, of course, you know you all get the opportunity to request what branch you might want to be assigned to. And, and I requested aviation and was assigned aviation and, uh, and went from there. Okay, so you hear this kind of snide remark from this old crusty colonel who tells you you can't. How much did that light a fire under you to say, well, now I want to do it just because you told me I couldn't? Significantly, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I I don't know. Even when I entered flight school, and just because all of the aircraft were open, didn't mean that I was necessarily interested in the Apache. Except that it it's a pretty amazing aircraft, right? And if you're right. going to do something for eight years or or twenty years or or longer, uh, it seems to me you want to fly the coolest aircraft that you can be qualified to fly. And uh, and at the time, that seemed to me to be the Apache. And let me give some more people some background information. Uh, we, we did have, for those who know, like the Blackhawk, we talked to Matt Eversman from Blackhawk Down on the first podcast, uh, first edition of the podcast. And Blackhawk is a transport helicopter. Yes, it has some weaponry on it, but its main mission is that. Whereas an Apache is particularly a, an attack helicopter. It's loaded with missiles. It's loaded with guns. For civilian folks just understanding, I don't need to give them all the you know details of what exactly they are, but it's got more weaponry on it than basically a tank in certain cases. So uh, it is the, the creme de la creme of all attack helicopters. And, and to get to fly one of those, you get the highest level of training. You get the hardest training that there is. So when you decided that, hey, you know what? Not only am I going to go be an Apache pilot, I'm going to go be a, a one that actually flies missions. You, was that something right. that you kind of just thought like, okay, now that you've ticked me off, I'm going to go for the highest level I can go for? Well, and I wouldn't say that I was driven the entire time by that. I think what, what that, that instance with that National Guard colonel really was a catalyst for was, was requesting active duty. And then beyond that, you know, I, I, I get excited about challenge. And so each different iteration of training, it became clear that I wanted to do something that was hard and that was tough and that was fun and really mission focused. And so, um, so yeah, that, that was always, and, and that's going to be flying in a line unit with, uh, with the most technologically advanced and lethal helicopter in the world. Right. So that was always the biggest challenge that seemed to present itself and, um, and, and seemed like it would be the, the best way to spend that kind of energy. Now, this is still the mid-90s when this is going on, just for some background for folks. I mean, yes, the Army was, was fully integrated with women, and they were in every aspect, but still, that good old boy network persisted. And obviously, I want to get into you know some of the bad things that have gone on in the military as far as it pertains to men and women serving together, but you know, there is still kind of that, hey, the, you know, okay, we'll let the ladies do this kind of thing, and that, 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 if you will, sexism that was hidden, but yet it was still kind of out there. So with that, when you got to active duty, did you find that it was less? Did you find it was easier to be a woman in a man's world, so to speak? No. <laughs> no. And in fact, I think that, you know, when you come out of a college um, environment, you have an idea that everything is uh, is an equal playing field because an academic world is, is 
although it's not like that. It's structured for students to perceive it that way. And I think, uh, you know, in some regards, I was extremely sheltered from both my upbringing as well as, as a really great university experience. And so I think getting, and then really the schoolhouse for the, the military is not that dissimilar, right? You go through all your standard training and people are mostly correct in how they address things. And I think when you get out into the real world, whether that's the real business world or whether that's the active duty military, uh, then things are going to be a little bit rougher. And, uh, and they certainly were. I know there were some plans to make the integration of women in attack aviation more um, an easier transition by assigning junior officers to units with senior officers. But at the very, very beginning, there are no senior officers. Right. So when I arrived at Fort Bragg, I was um, the first female pilot to arrive at Fort Bragg, 1871 Corps, in the 29th Aviation Regiment. And there are 120 male pilots who have been doing things you know, their way for a long, long time. And then uh, a young lieutenant who, by virtue of the junior rank of lieutenant alone, <laughs> has its own challenges, right? Yeah. Um, but as a as a young woman lieutenant, came into an environment with 120 male pilots, and um, and it was tough. Did did anybody warm up to you immediately? Because I mean, like every kind of movie you ever see about this, there's always one brave soul who's willing to say, "Hey, you know what? We're the same. I don't care that you're a woman. You're the same. We went through the same training. We did the same thing. Come with me." Did you have somebody there that kind of warmed up to Absolutely. you like that? Yeah, there, I worked with some of the best people that I've ever known in my eight years uh, in, in every single unit. There, I mean, there's just wonderful people, obviously, and some of the best folks that you'll know as, as humans and as officers and as um, as as people. So I feel very, very fortunate for that. I mean, you're always going to have the bell curve, right, in any way that you right. And I think uh, the military, because it's more insular, there's an opportunity for some of those experiences to be both uh, much better than you might experience elsewhere and, and much worse than you might experience elsewhere. So, so there's certainly those opportunities. But I, I, I flew with some great folks, worked with some great folks, and uh, and I will be forever grateful for that experience. Were there a, a group of people who were willing to kind of, let's air quote, play by the rules, but yet still put them in their favor? Like, for example, okay, we have this woman here, yes, she can fly Apache's pilot. She she can do all these other things that we're all doing. But you know what? When push comes to shove, if I need somebody, she's still at the bottom of the list of the people I'm going to pick. You know what I'm saying? Like how the commander has discretion for this job, that job, this assignment, that assignment, or this training mission, that training mission, and yet everybody else seemed to be picked. Did you run into any of that? You know, um, possibly. I mean, it's hard to say, right, because those are the types of things that don't present themselves as obvious. I was very fortunate. My first battalion commander, I have, I still have a ton of respect for him. And um, and his wife was also a battalion commander at the same time, also in aviation, although not attack aviation. And so he had a very different perspective, I think, than a lot of commanders might have. Um, at the same time, when I showed up as a lieutenant, you don't work directly for the battalion commander. And I was put into a staff position as the assistant to the assistant S3. And I remember, I mean, there are several interactions there that I remember that would just make you laugh now because I just can't, you would hope that they couldn't happen now. But um, but I remember asking for the platoon and saying, you know, I really, I'm here to fly, I'm here to lead, I'm, I'm trained in this Apache, I'm ready to, to get involved in flying missions, which is what any lieutenant, you know, would want to do. And most lieutenants were put directly into platoons. And, uh, and, and you know, everyone has to do some staff time as well. But it, it, it took a long time to get that platoon. And I remember one Saturday coming in and the major that was uh, responsible for our operations shop would sort of hold court in the middle of the office and all of us would be working around him. And 
Uh, and I remember him looking over once and saying, don't worry, Lieutenant, you'll be married by the time you're 25. Wow. <laughs> and I, I just thought, you know, I'm not, I didn't say anything back to him. I just kept working at what I was doing. And I was thinking, I'm not here to get married. I'm not, I'm not even thinking about that. I'm here to fly and fight the Apache, just like every other person that's trained to fly and fight the Apache. And, um, I went a few months later to the captain that I was reporting directly to and said, hey, sir, you know, I'm, I'm doing this work. I think I'm doing a good job. I'm wondering when there might be a platoon opening up. Do you have any idea what those discussions are? And that captain looked at me and said, Lieutenant, the Army doesn't owe you anything. And so those are the two instructions wow. that I remember. And so, you know, that's possible that that could have happened to any lieutenant. It's hard to say. I did ultimately ask for more and more responsibility and made sure that everything I did, I blew out of the water and... Uh, so to speak, and then took my platoon and then took a second platoon to Bosnia. But um, but I do remember as I go back over each of those experiences that every single thing that I did in the Army, and I did it well, and I, I made sure that I did it very well, I had to ask for. I had to ask for my first platoon, my second platoon. I had to ask for my command. There was nothing that was presented to me. And I think that you've, uh, you know, in a way, that's what you've got to do as an officer and as a business person or be prepared to do. But I, it's possible that 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 was required more of me than it might have otherwise been. When you look back on that, does it frustrate you that it took as long and you had to do as much? Did you feel like your peers didn't? No, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I I think I was frustrated to, to wait as long for a platoon. I think that could happen to, to folks in, in different circumstances. But, um, but you know, there's always the, the few people, and they're always the ones that are, are not the ones that, you're, that are the exceptional folks that are saying, oh, well, what's taking her so long to get the platoon? There must be something wrong with her, you know? And uh, and that yeah, I mean that can frustrate you, but I knew that I was performing well, and I was recognized for performing well. So neither of those were were, were concerns. And ultimately, I did fly, and I, I did have a chance to to lead two different platoons, and that was that was a, a great opportunity. How much hazing did you get? How much did you hear comments that were made that were inappropriate? How much did uh, you feel like you were ostracized by males around you because you were a female? Oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, again, I think I just worked with some really awesome people uh, for most of the time, and that is what I'm most grateful for. That happens for sure. Um, I think that happens probably regardless of of your gender as a lieutenant anyway. Um, and, and it's hard to say, you know, when I look back on things too is, you know, I came in maybe more more naive coming from a, you know, a regular university environment and from a a, a good good opportunity to grow up in a in a supportive household, and um, then maybe someone that came in from you know West Point that's more used to some of the stuff that goes on. So so it's hard to say how much of it was was my naivete and my um, you know my own personality as well. I, I remember plenty of failures of mine too, and I remember trying to get my warrant officers to write book reports, which I thought was great and exceeding the standard and. And, you know, <laughs> that was absolutely the naivete of a Duke University English major. Um, that's not what they were there to do. And I was schooled in a very uh, professional way by a couple <laughs> of senior warrant officers on that on that um, mistake. So I want to make sure that the conversation encompasses plenty of the, the, the silly lieutenant mistakes that I made as well. So, And let me clarify for everybody. If it seems like you're saying, well, I don't know, because other lieutenants were all... It, it, Life as a lieutenant in the military is, I don't want to call it hard. It's just, it, it's a different environment for those who don't understand. So when you're a lieutenant, you're the lowest ranking officer. But in certain cases, you're almost treated worse than a private. 
Uh, because at least the private right. went to basic training. Like at least the private got smacked around, so to speak, and got yelled at and got pulled out of bed and, and all those other things. Whereas as an officer, the, the general kind of over officers don't really work, air quoted, you know, because we're, we're just in charge and we give the orders and the enlisted corps and the NCOs do all the work. And when you're a lieutenant, you're 21 years old, 22 years old, and you're in charge of people who are sometimes 10 years older than you are and have 10 to 15 years more experience than you do. So there is a certain amount, and I don't want to make it seem like Shannon is... is kind of hiding behind anything, there is a certain amount as a lieutenant of crap you're going to take, if you will, and you're going to be looked at kind of cross-eyed most times because you're really wet behind the ears and you have to make a lot of mistakes. So that is fair. I just I don't want people to think that you're not you're trying to avoid the answer or, or, or tell, you know, truths that may have gone on. There is a certain amount of it that actually happens. Okay, let's uh let's keep moving forward here because when you finally get your platoon and you were the first woman to take a flight platoon on deployment to Bosnia-Herzegovina as part of the stabilization force. When you fly your first mission there, what was that like? Yeah, um, well, no, to be to be fair, this was the second platoon that I took. That I took okay, I'm sorry. And by the time I took that second platoon, I had actually asked for a transfer to the other battalion um, to take that platoon. And at that point, another, actually, I think there were two females that had been assigned to that other battalion at that point. So I actually took a platoon in a company with another female platoon leader. So there were two of us in that company um, deploying to Bosnia, and then the other uh, woman was, I, I believe, on staff. So, so a little bit different. But um, let me ask you: Is that a relief to have other finally see other women there? Uh, I don't know if it was a relief. I think you know until you have a critical mass of women, um, it's still a, it's still a, you know, it's still a very huge dynamic um right. I, yeah so I, I don't know that i ever thought it was a relief it was it was perfectly fine so yeah i think it was and she was a west pointer so she came with with some of that uh, institutional knowledge that we talked about <laughs> right so that was good that was great but um but yeah our missions in bosnia were supporting uh the dayton peace accords and the stabilization force so it was all nato missions when we were flying armed aerial reconnaissance and uh just a couple years after the the uh, initial force was in Bosnia, so it was still fairly tense, uh, although there were now rules of engagement in place that, that were fairly restrictive, like a 300-foot hard deck, which, is, which means that that's the lowest that the helicopter could fly, which for a helicopter is actually pretty high. We like to fly very, very low uh, tactically. And uh, the, the initial flights were, were really familiarization flights to get to know the area, the multinational division north, which is, was our assigned sector, and there were multiple other countries that were part of as you can imagine, the name Multinational Division North and uh, and throughout the whole NATO effort. So it was a really interesting time because uh, every movement had to be coordinated not only with our own unit, but with ground units that might be from other countries, as well as a, an overall controlling agency that had to manage all of the flights and, and all of the movements in the, in the country. So, so it was absolutely fascinating. It was certainly tense. I mean, we flew with, with Hellfire missiles and with... Um, 30 millimeter high explosives loaded and ready to uh, ready to shoot. Uh, although technically we weren't at war, so it was it was clear that we were trying to balance this kind of peacekeeping mission with the fact that there were still a very real tensions that were in place. So. Was there any nervousness on your part, like oh my god, this is for real? Finally, I get to do this. Yeah, I mean, I had requested it because I was uh, I really wanted to go on deployment. You know, I think when you're, you're trained to do something and you're trained to do it well, and you believe in the mission, you want a, an opportunity to be a part of that mission when it's executed. And so during my time in service, that that was the first opportunity to, to be a part of a deployment. And so I made the request to, to take that transfer, even though I thought my 
battalion commander, my first battalion commander, was just exceptional. Uh, and typically, I think you want to try to stick around and work for exceptional people. But I, um, but I asked for the transfer because I, I really wanted the opportunity to deploy. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, certainly you're aware that there's, at the time, there were 9 million, 9 million unexploded and unmarked landmines in country. So we were told that if you have a land as soon as possible emergency, you, you might want to try to get to the nearest airfield instead. Right. <laughs> um, so there was, there was plenty of tension in the, in the area. And, um, and, and I wanted that opportunity to do something that felt real and felt like it was really contributing. So. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that you, you can't be scared. I mean, look, there's a lot of people I know who sign up for deployments, and still, combat is scary. So, I mean, how much of, how much fear did you have? Yeah, no, I would say, that, I mean, there were some missions that were, that were definitely dicey. I mean, we had one that uh, we flew that was, again, you know, these are standard reconnaissance missions where we would fly typically in a team, teams of two and do reconnaissance at the time of weapon storage sites that the, the service was supposed to keep weapons in and, you know, a certain number, and we'd count them and send the tapes back to military intelligence. And I remember one of them was a nighttime mission, uh, and we were flying under infrared, which, you know, the conditions were fine, and, and it was uh, good night flying. Uh, and then I remember hearing that we were being tracked by one of the most hostile missile systems uh, in the world. And it was the sound that I'd heard in my headset only in a simulator, because because it's a legitimate threat. And uh, and I remember we called up to the controlling agency, and my backseater and I were both extremely tense. And uh, and he was asking me, like, you, you want us to break the hard deck? And I said, if we're not going to break the hard deck, we're going to keep, you know, let's, let's call up the, to the controlling agency. And, and as I was waiting for their reply, we heard the signal switch to an acquisition signal. So technically, we had been acquired by one of the most lethal anti-aircraft systems in the world. And uh, we got the message back from the controlling agency that we were not to break the hard deck, that if we were nervous, we could return to base. And, um, and yeah, we, I mean, we were very nervous. <laughs> and I think I had to make a decision then, and it was based, obviously, on lots of situational awareness at the time, lots of the information that we had that we knew, we knew that there had been no helicopter that had been shot out with a major system um, uh, since the Bosnia work had begun, and um, we knew that technically this was against the rules of engagement for the other side, and so we made the decision to turn down turn down the noise, and I talk about that now in leadership presentations to folks, that there's times when you have to make that strategic decision to to turn down the volume and stay focused on the mission, and so we did, but yeah, absolutely, I was scared. Well, first of all, I know everybody listening to this who's not military is thinking Top Gun right now. Like, that's all they're thinking, because <laughs> they had radar lock on you, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but and I wonder, you know, the thing that that is bouncing around in my head is, you know, for a guy like me who's on the ground in combat, like when the first bullet goes by your head, I don't know if you have it that much time to be nervous and scared because you're like, okay, yeah, th- this is started. When you hear that sound that they've locked on you, that's got to be beyond unnerving because you don't know if they're actually going to fire. You just know that if they do, they have you dead to rights. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, how long did, after you hear the sound, are you waiting? What's this time frame like? Because it must have felt like a million seconds. Yeah, no, I mean, I, we had, initially we were being tracked, so you have different sounds for tracking in that position. And, um, and that, in that period of time, when the controlling agency came back with such complete nonchalance <laughs> to essentially say, well, yeah, if, that, if, it's, if it's concerning to you, you can go back. Uh, I mean, that was part of the decision to turn down the noise, right? Because well, when, uh, when you say turn down the noise, clarify. 
When you say turn down the noise, what do yeah, you mean? Yeah, so there's there's volume. Uh, there's a volume, uh, you know, that you can turn any radio or any communication system louder or, or less loud. And so this was a system that we could turn the volume down on and okay. uh, and basically say we, we knew that we could be provoked potentially, and I think that's true in any engagement, lots of peacekeeping engagements and certainly wartime, right, uh, where there's provocation that could, could result in action and um, we get in some trouble, and we knew that it was a lot, a lot more likely to be. Prov- we were more likely to be provoked than we were to be actually uh, fired upon. And so, I think all of the, that information again came into the decision to just turn the volume down. When Not you pay attention to it, when you finally got and back, consider it to be provocation essentially. What's that? When you finally got back on the ground, what did you say to your rear, your copilot, after it was over? You know, I don't remember what we. <laughs> I don't remember. I imagine we post flighted and went and debriefed. Um, but I think we. I mean, I really. That was early on in in the deployment, and I think what that was to us was an indicator. And I imagine uh, probably talked about at higher levels, although again, as a lieutenant, don't really know these things. Uh, but um, was that there's going to be provocation, you know? And you know, we'd heard that people would pretend to be shooting, miss, you know, shoulder-mounted missiles by holding a log up. So. Technically, you're allowed to fire back if you feel threatened at the time under that rules of engagement, but but you knew that that was a lot more likely than it than it being an actual shoulder mounted missile. So, do you want to be the person that fires back on a 12 year old that's holding a log? I mean, <laughs> so so it's a tough thing, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think rules of engagement are really, really, really tricky and um, and trickier uh, than I think most people that have not had the opportunity to to wear a uniform have any idea. Yeah, and sometimes rules of engagement makes things harder. than it, it, you, you would think it makes it easier because it outlines it, but uh, sometimes it makes the decision a lot tougher. Did you ever have to fire your weapon? Not against anything other than a range. Okay. No. All right. Well, yes. and I just wonder because for everybody it's different. Like I know the first time I pulled a trigger in combat, it was it was a seminal moment for me from the standpoint of like, okay, there's no turning back. Like once you do right. this, the, the, once you do this, everything is different for you. Like your 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 entire outlook on life is different because of what comes with the decision to pull that trigger. So when you're up there and you're flying, and like you said, it could be a twelve year old holding onto something that's not a rifle that's not trying to kill you, and you have to make that decision and make that determination in a very very small amount of time uh, when it's that's your right. life versus theirs. So it, it's it's a tough call to say the least. Yeah, and I, and I remember, and I don't want to in any way equate this, by the way, to your experience. And I have incredible, um, a, a lot of, of, of not only respect for, but humility for my own experience relative to, to those of you who have been in more recent uh, war, wartime conflicts. But I remember one mission where we were assigned to go, it was a show of force, essentially, and they were, there was another Apache taking a VIP over to um, to a to a, a special meeting somewhere, and we had very specific instructions that if he were to come running out of this meeting, then we would take out these buildings in this order. So we had missiles that were loaded, and we had buildings that were targeted, and we were ready to take them out in that order. And I remember just that preparation for that mission alone. I mean, it's a decision, right, that you're you're going out there and you are ready to 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 to, to deploy your weaponry and that is a different it was a whole different mental space to be in than you know it's fun to go to the range and shoot right it's a whole different mental space to go into to say we're going out here and we are ready to target these buildings and release these missiles and um and i remember that preparation to essentially it's a preparation to kill right and when once you've done it you 
it's a it's a it's a whole different mental place to be in for sure. Let me ask you because uh, as a female, the perception is is that you would have a softer side of that decision. I mean, and whether that's right or wrong, generally females are, are less violent, aggressive beings physiologically and everything else. Uh, how did you handle sure. that whole? kind of inner struggle, if you will, or did it even exist for you that, uh, you know, this, or, or was it kind of just like, hey, this is my job and I do it? Yeah, I, I have no inner struggle with that. <laughs> it was my job and I would do it, you know? I think I've always been very focused that way. Again, I think a lot of that has just to do with our individual personalities, and I think of that, I mean, I think you're right in making probably a, a overall generalization, but, um, but again, if you've been in, you know, competitive athletics and competitive music events and um, competitive academics. I mean, it's a focused environment. You go out and you execute. And, um, so that, that has never been an issue for me at all. So That's not too anticlimactic for you. but No, it's, not it's, at all. No, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's an honest answer. And I, that's really all we're looking for. I, I just was, I was curious yeah. if there was any of that for you, uh, as opposed to, you know, some other females that you may have run into who struggled with it. Because, again, the dynamic is different. And it's, there, let me at least add this. There are some men who have the same problems with that decision. Sure, of course. Right. And, you know, I think it's also different, though, in fairness. I mean, first of all, you self-select into the Apache, right? No one's going to make you fight the Apache. So if you are going to self-select into the Apache, there's not any question that it's a weapons platform, and that's its entire purpose is to go out and to deploy weaponry. And so I think there's a a self-selection that probably uh, puts the types of people in that cockpit that are that don't have as much of an issue with that. Um, so, yeah, so I, do, I would say that's probably primary among it is that, that those are the, those are those are not your, your folks that are wrestling quite as much with it. And at the same time, I, I don't think that there's any question that if I had had to use force in a way that um, resulted in deaths, I think that I would I would wrestle with that for the rest of as well. So I think it's also different to say that if you're an infantry soldier and you're in you know, hand-to-hand combat or or looking somebody in the eyes, and that's a lot different than shooting the Apache, which has a you know multi-kilometer standoff range and um, is a little bit more like a video game. So I think there are lots of pieces that factor into that that make it a little bit of a different decision. Uh, final thought on on Bosnia and your time there. When it was all said and done, uh, did do you feel a sense of pride as a woman that you were one of the first and, and the first woman in the 18th Airborne Corps and one of the first uh, to to do such a, a thing in a combat environment? I uh, I think I I felt I feel pride in that now. At right. the time, I don't think I think in the same way that when you, as you described, as you you know you feel the bullet was by your head and you say, okay, I'm in it, I'm I'm working now. I think that was the same sort of feeling that I had at the time. And while I was in the military for, for the entire eight years, um, there you know there were certainly some some press conferences and things like that that you attend. So it's not as though I was oblivious to it, and I certainly understood that. The feedback that came as a result, as well as being in part a, a gender-related uh, feedback, but at the time I was there and I was doing the mission, and there was plenty to keep us busy doing the mission. So I wasn't—I don't think I ever thought about that. I was proud of our work in Bosnia, and I was proud of—I later deployed to Korea um, as well. And I think our work in both of those places, which is tenser than most people have a sense of, unless they've actually been there. Uh, made me very proud for the opportunity to be there and to be a part of that. Uh, the idea of the, the challenges of being a woman, I don't think I've 
fully processed until quite a bit later. And and now I am proud of it. At the time, I don't think I would have allowed myself that because there just wasn't time and space for that. I'd like to explore a little more about the challenges of being a woman in the military because, as you said, your military career lasted eight years. You moved on to do something else, and you know now you're into motivational speaking and, and leadership conferences and things of that nature. But you know, a year and a half ago, you watched two females graduate from Ranger School, the first two females ever to do it. Uh, Ranger School was yep. something that was exclusively only for men. Uh, it was it was deemed that physically women just couldn't handle it. It's not even like they didn't even have to keep it close to them. They just didn't think physically women can handle it. But for those who don't know their names, Captain Kristen Geis and First Lieutenant Shea Haver uh, were the first two women to graduate from Ranger School. I was incredibly excited for both of them. I mean, I've never met them, obviously. But you know, what kind of moment was that for you, looking back on your experience and seeing how far the military has come? I was incredibly proud of them. I, I had the chance to talk to Shea Haver, actually, and I interviewed her for the GRIT Project, which is my blog uh, interviewing women in, in the vanguard of some of these fields. And she is just a firecracker. I mean, she's, she's, she's spectacular. And I, I, I go back, you know, when I was, I remember being in the military in the 90s and hearing these comments about what women can and can't do. And I just have to say that if you think that a woman can't do something, and I mean anything, including physical, you just haven't been around the right women. I mean, I, right. again, growing up in Alaska, and I remember uh, I climbed Denali when I was 19, which is the highest peak in North America. You probably know Mount McKinley uh, is the old name for it. And a friend of mine climbed it. She's an Olympic Nordic skier. Climbed it a few years later, and she met a couple of Special Forces guys <laughs> that were up there climbing it as well. And they were doing the West Buttress route, which is the standard route. And she was climbing up the Kitsin Ridge, which is a very technical route. And um, and when she talked to them, she said, "You know, I have a friend at Fort Bragg, and she's flying Apaches." And the guy, the two guys, said, "Oh, that's not possible. There's no women climbing that. You know, they can't do that." She said, "Oh, okay. Well, whatever." You know. <laughs> And then she proceeded to summit and uh, came down and, and passed them, and they had not summited. And I don't bring that up to make fun of anybody, but just to say that, that women are unbelievably physically capable. And again, you just have not been around the right women if you think that they aren't. And so the whole concept that women can't get through any kind of physical challenge is just absurd to me. And now sure, there are some women, many women that can't, and there are right. many men that can't. Uh, um, so when, when Shay and, and Kristen, and I uh, hope they don't mind me calling them by their first names, but when they graduated Ranger School, I was just just stoked for them. I mean, they're, that's just awesome. I just think that's spectacular. Now, and now with, I think there's, a, there's at least a third, if there's not more. So. I'm with you 100%. It certainly was, it was awesome to see because, uh, look, uh, anybody who graduates Ranger School deserves a pat on the back, to say the least. And uh, when you're the first two women to do it, it's certainly noteworthy, to say the least. Now that the Army and the military have opened up combat arms branches to all women, something that's only happened recently. Uh, is that something that's right. taken too long, or what was your response to that? You know, I don't know. I think it's a long time coming. I think that anybody who is qualified to do a job ought to be able to do it. And um, and I don't think you're going to see women flocking in droves from sororities to the infantry, so whatever concerns <laughs> <laughs> there are. Again, people are going to self-select into those things, right? And I think you self-select into the Apache, you self-select into... Uh, you self-select into those sorts of things that are challenging in ways that um, uh, that that you're prepared for, and then you're tested on it. And if you're tested on the same standard and you meet it, well, then more power to them. And, uh, you know, it is still, there's still a chauvinistic, male chauvinistic uh, ideology in the military that is probably never going to go away completely, and, and even in our country, that's probably never going to go away completely. And, and so I'm not all that surprised that it took as long as it did, but I think uh, I think people will be pleasantly surprised that the women are going to perform well. And I think 
the male leaders have got to step up and have absolutely no tolerance for any kind of gender-based harassment and, uh, and, and give them a chance to do their jobs. And that makes all of us stronger. If you have the strongest people doing the jobs, you're going to be stronger as an organization, period. So. And you talk about that chauvinism that still you know, is in the military. I mean, look, uh, if, right or wrong, 87% of the military is made up of men. I mean, it's only 13% women, so they're vastly sure. outnumbered. That doesn't make it right. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the demographics of it certainly make it harder for women to excel in these areas. Because as you said, not being around the right women, there's not exactly a vast population of the right women running around to be able to do all these things. Right. But, you know, the thing that is available now, and this is one of the reasons that I started the GRIP Project, interviewing these other incredible women and just getting stories out there, is because women have been doing this stuff for a while. And I think, uh, I, in fairness, in the 90s, you know, the Internet just sort of, Getting not getting its legs under it, which is sort of amazing to think of now. But but the stories are out there now. I mean, there's three squadrons of of unbelievable combat pilots in Russia in World War II that were all women. And if you go out there and you do your research, you there's there's a lot of a lot of indicators. It's not like it's some new thing that's never happened before. So I think part of it is educating and telling those stories too, and making sure you're telling stories that include all the people that you are representing in your unit. And that way that everybody gets a sense of that sense of pride and that sense of shared ownership. And I think that that storytelling piece is absolutely critical. You mentioned a moment ago about males being strong leaders, strong enough to not only advocate for women and help them, but also, you know, to stop the kind of chauvinism that that is still prevalent in the military. I have to ask you, because this, as a public service announcement, but also as somebody who still puts on a uniform, is something that I, I take very seriously uh, the sexual harassment and the sexual assaults that have gone on in the military it were, was rampant for a while, even back when you were in. And it was more undercover yes. then than, than it has ever been exposed uh, up to now. And that was probably more of the egregious nature that it was so hidden before, but it was still going on to the level that it is. When you watched all this unfold, even though you were out of the military by the time most of it came to light, did you ever experience of it? Did you ever see a, a, any of it around you at any point in time throughout your career? And how did you react to it? I mean, the answer to that is yes, uh, both overtly and covertly. And I'm, I'm just starting to kind of write about this and, and work on this right now. So, yes, the answer is yes. I think my response was to just focus on my work. And um, regardless of how overt and how uh, heinous it might be, and in some cases it was, um, I think the most heinous were typically not things that other people are aware of, right? So right. It's something that somebody's doing when other people don't know, the, the less heinous but much more broad uh, examples are things where other men ought to be stepping up and saying this isn't okay. You know, you can't do that. And uh, so my response was, because I did not want that to be the story of my career, I expected myself to excel, and I did excel, and I wanted that to be the story that was that I told myself and that, that was external as well, was that I was not going to discuss it or bring it up at all. And I don't know if that was the right decision or not in hindsight. Um, I, I I did excel. I did do very well, and I'm very proud of the the, the work that I did. Uh, I did not bring any of that up, and I um, I don't know. I don't know for the societal good and the good of future military women if just focusing on my work was the right thing to do, or if I should have done it. Up. Um, I still ask myself that question. How much fear but did you have? My that... reaction was just to stay focused. How much fear did you have that it would derail what goals you wanted to accomplish? 
a great amount of fears. I mean, enough that I did I didn't even consider bringing any of it. Well, up and that's at any point. I asked that question because that's the biggest problem. Because you, what you have in your scenario is you have a motivated young lieutenant who wants to accomplish things. And oh, by the way, she's a female. And because there are things going on that are inappropriate and shouldn't be happening, you now as an individual have to put your own needs in front of the needs of the military. And that's exactly counter to what we preach as far as values. You put the needs of the military in front of your own, but yet it's such a tough spot for females because if you bring it to light, now all of a sudden you are putting yourself on a very dangerous path. And I I understand that. I don't want anybody to think for one second, I don't understand the spot that you were in, and I don't think you were wrong for the decision that you made, and you're a trailblazer because of the things that you accomplished, but I certainly would understand the dilemma and the internal struggle that you had to say, hey, I just got to put up with this. As wrong as it is, I've got to put up with it because I have bigger things in mind, and maybe this is what goes on and all those other things. I don't know how you reconcile that. That must have tore you apart inside. Yeah, I mean, I think it still does to some degree because I think now that I'm a little bit older, I just, I mean, I just have no time for that kind of stuff, you know? Right. And if I had a daughter, I would just, I would, I would rip somebody to shreds to come anywhere near her <laughs> with that kind of thing. So I think that is a kind of, and that's the kind of reaction I think the, the, the more senior male leaders and quite frankly, more male junior leaders should be having. Uh, but right now I have, so I have absolutely no tolerance for that. And so I think, yeah, I don't. I don't know what the right answer is in that case. I think I, I did a, I, I set a good example for women, and in the job that I did, I don't. I don't know what the right answer would have been on the other thing. Um, but I'm. I'm proud of the service and of of asking for the hard jobs and doing them really well, and and um, and that's what I like to focus on. But I also think that the military and society generally. I mean, colleges are are having the same issue, right? Yes has got to start to come to terms with how you treat people. It's not just women. It's treating people well and civilly, and uh, and we've got to start just taking care of each other. And I mean, we all will do better for our society that way if we do. Yeah, and, and again, for my part, all I can do is just if is be that strong leader that you asked for. Just just stop it where you see it and not allow it to continue because the minute you turn your head and say it's not that big of a deal, you're immediately complicitly part of the problem and that really is an issue that needs to be addressed at at the most senior levels and it's something i take very personally because i have a lot of pride in the army in particular but in the military as a whole Uh, i I still put that uniform on and still wear it every day and i expect everybody to have a certain level of of dignity and just you know decency for other people around them uh, that sometimes gets lost in the mission and and to me that is a uh is is a major flaw but it's about the people doing the job so i ask you with that what do you tell young women you talk to now how to handle this situation? You know, I haven't, it's interesting because I've been in a couple of places, uh, an online mentorship program and then with this, this grip project. Uh, and I haven't had that specific question come up. And then because I'm still wrestling a little bit with my own response or my choice to not respond, I, I would start with saying, and, and this is not fair, by the way. None of this is fair, right? Does any of it even exist? But um, by you, you give nobody any excuses, and that doesn't mean that people aren't going to take the opportunity regardless. But you, you you focus on your job. You don't focus on you don't, and you don't get involved in anything outside of doing your job, and you do it well, um, and you do it better than anybody else around you. And I think that's the, the most important thing. Uh, I don't know enough about how the military is handling things right now to, to advise somebody beyond that, except to say that I think 
that a woman, unfortunately, uh, has to be pretty careful of of um, the situations that uh, she puts herself into. And that does not mean that it is at any point her responsibility for somebody else acting badly. But in order to take care of herself, that would be my recommendation. And I remember going on into the corporate world through my MBA program and into the corporate world, and uh, and I just decided I'm never going to an after party ever, ever. And, you know, stuff gets done at after parties. You know, there's decisions made, there's conversations that are had. It's kind of like the golf course thing and the good old boys thing, right? Right. And I will never go to an after party. And I, you know, still ran into some challenges at a early party that was a corporate event that was post-military. So, so things can happen, but I think you can mitigate some of that by, um, by, by choosing your circumstances wisely. And is that fair? Absolutely not. It's not. It shouldn't be like that. Um, but that's what I would advise. Before. You know, for a, for a young woman in the military now, I would have to imagine that it's got to be so incredibly hard to be trusting of any male because you, you, we've heard the stories. Like, it, it just happens. Usually the assaults and, and the harassment happens to people closest to them. Because lines right. get blurred and you think you're friends and all that. And, and, and you know, one person thinks it's okay, another person may not. And that, to me, has got to be hard because so much of what we do in the military is dependent on trusting the person right next to you. And if you don't, then you immediately have a breakdown of being able to accomplish the mission because you need that person. Yeah. No, that's true. That's definitely true. And I, and, I, and yet, I don't want to, uh, and I don't want to to, uh, to, to, to too much direct your interview, but I... I do want to say that that most of my experience in the military was number one positive, and number two was very mission focused. And I think the key is to stay mission focused, right? And uh, and you have the fewest problems, I think, on places where you are the most mission focused, and you're the most um, most most connected to the people that you're working with on a mission. And you're busy, and you're 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 focused and working, and and, uh, and there's not a lot of free time. And and that that's the best of all possible environments. I think I think it's the most fun because you're you're so focused and uh, usually for aviation that means you're flying all the time and that's that is just the best possible scenario. So I think uh, that that's the thing to focus on as well. I, I mean I'm a full supporter obviously of women having any opportunity that they need to do and I think men and women again just need to treat each other with respect and, and basic civility. So when you look back on your career, uh, is there anything you wish you would have done differently? Oh don't think so professionally. I mean, I think I made all the silly mistakes that people can make in their twenties at various points. But I think, uh, you know, personally. But I think professionally, I worked. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, I did my best. I asked for the hardest assignments. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think I would have changed anything. Do you feel like the way ahead for women in the military is positive? I do. I think there are some absolutely exceptional role models out there now. It's been uh, all of this work on integration has been ongoing long enough that I think there really are some just exceptional women and leaders generally for uh, for young women to see that are really setting the example in the right way. And the, the conversation is an important one to have and to keep on the table to make sure that, that things are going in the right direction. But I think uh, it absolutely has, has great opportunities. I, I will say I think there's no question that in the places where integration is happening right now that there are going to be significant challenges, and that is where I think specifically male leadership has to step up. You know, you've been on both sides of this as in the military and out. Do you find that women, for lack of a better term, integration and advancement is better in the military or in the civilian world? Well, it's my, my timing for both has been 
very different. So my, my time in the military was in the 90s, uh, so I don't know that I can speak to it as well today. I know there's still, you know, even in, in attack helicopter units, there are fewer, certainly many, many fewer women than there would be, like, in a lift helicopter unit, again, based on that self-selection. Uh, and I imagine there are still challenges, but then some of the older guys are gone, so hopefully some of that's not as challenging. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think some of the issues are the same. I think... Uh, I think there are more women that are not in the military, obviously, uh, but there are different challenges in the in the corporate world as well, and a different phase of life that ends up impacting uh, decisions for women. So I think the challenges are probably similar. I think that the uh, what I experienced in terms of gender specific concerns in the military was much more severe than it was in the in the corporate world. And but again, I, I like to hope that other than the very early integration phases that that is hopefully changing for folks as well. So, You've mentioned the GRIT project several times, and, and I've looked at the website. I think it's fantastic. But just kind of give everybody a sum up real quick of what the GRIT project is and how young women can get involved. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I started a, a blog last year, and it's, um, it's not, it, it is interviewing women in the vanguard of their fields in the military for the most part. So I had the opportunity, and I'm just so grateful, but to talk to I, you know, the first West Point woman to achieve the rank of general officer, the Army's first four-star general, but also uh, First Lieutenant Shea Haver, who's now a captain, who was one of the first women to go through Ranger School, one of the first women submariners, uh, one of the first women Coast Guard rescue swimmers. So lots of these people in these early integrations, including WASPs from World War II, women in early uh, aviation integrations prior to opening combat exclusion clause. And so all of these people have, have had the opportunity to be leaders in environments that are very, very challenging, uh, in part because of an integration of their gender. And so they all will speak very candidly and tell stories of, of their challenges and their triumphs. And I really think they're the types of stories that I would have liked to have known when I was a young lieutenant. I just didn't know uh, where to look, and I didn't even know to look. And so I think there will be times after the schoolhouse when there are going to be real uh, places of challenge and frustration. And so I, at that point, some of the things that I recommend to folks is, is one of them is that you find strength and specific direction in the stories of other people, both who are actively in that pursuit, but also those who have made that pursuit earlier and have shared their stories. So that's the idea behind the GRIP project is in part to, um, is to scale mentorship, essentially, from, from a larger group of people to a larger group of people. And it's also to help to change the conversation around women. So to that point on, you know, that we just don't see that many of these self-selecting women. Well, we'll start reading about some of them, right. you know, because they're out there. And, and I think that helps to change attitudes, and uh, both in what women and men understand that women can do and the opportunities where they can contribute and really make an organization much stronger. So that's on my blog at aborderlife.com uh, forward slash grit. And I uh, have three books that I've, put onto Kindle that are compilations of those, the generals, the trailblazers, and the pilots that are all up on Amazon as well under She's Got Grit, uh, the trailblazers, the pilots, and the generals. Aborderlife.com slash grit, that's the place to go. Well, Shannon, from Alaska to Duke ROTC to the first ever woman to be assigned as a line pilot in the 18th Airborne Corps to fly in Apache pilot missions in combat. It's just an incredibly inspirational story. Uh, I, I honestly... I'm just blown away by what you've told us and all that you've had to go through. And, and without women like you doing what you have done, uh, we don't have a lot of the things that we have. I, I commend your courage. I applaud everything that you've bothered to stand up for and, and fight through and fight to, to get to where you are. And 
I, I certainly hope all the women listening to this podcast leave it a little bit more inspired than when they started because certainly that's the way I feel. I thank you so much for your time being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast, the first ever woman. You can add that to the list of titles that you have as the first ever woman on the Hazard Ground <laughs> Podcast, and we certainly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to talk to you today. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.